Open our Bibles, please, to the book of Isaiah, chapter 1. Isaiah, chapter 1. We got down to verse 15 in our lesson, and we'll pick up there and try to get into the second chapter, if we have plenty of time, and I think we will. So in the first chapter, verse 16, he says, Wash you, make you clean. Put away the evil from your doings. Put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Cease to do evil. Verse 17, learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed, judge the fatherless, plead for the widow. Now, if you notice that uh, in the previous verses of 16, that the Lord was sick of their form of religion. He despised their ritual without reality. They were going through all the ritual. And their sacrifices without obedience. And their gifts without the giver themselves. And as long as the people were living in sin, their temple service was insulting to God. You see, the Lord wants more than just a ritual or an outward appearance. And the mixing of iniquity and the solemn assembly that they, that they assembled together was hateful to God. And it shows us that mere external religion is ever a cloak to cover iniquity. And they were living in sin. And he told them to bring no more vain oblations and to uh, cease to bring their sacrifices. And then in verse 16, he calls for a reality. He, he makes an exhortation and an appeal to them to do something about the inside. And he says, wash you, make you clean. In other words, I want you to do something more. What should they do? They should wash themselves through repentance. Washing on the outside doesn't do any good if you don't wash the inside. And he was telling them that he wanted some reality about their uh, religion. He didn't want this just outward show and outward appearance and observance of rituals and new moons and Sabbath days and holy days and bringing sacrifices. God had ordained all of these things, but they were intended to cause them to think about the reality of it instead of just the outside of it. And by the way, that's true for you and I today. We just don't want a formal uh, outward worship, do we? We want an inward reality. If we come to the house of God, we come with repentant hearts. We come wanting to hear God's Word. We come wanting to be cleansed of our sins. We come wanting to respect the things of God instead of just to make a show or to perform a service. And if we can get the reality in our lives as Christians, it'll mean a lot more to us. Wash you, make you clean. So they needed... this. First they were told what they should do. And they were to... And not only that, uh, wash themselves through repentance, but they were to forsake evil. He says, put away the evil of your doings from before mine eyes. Look at that latter part of verse 16. And then they were to practice... Righteousness and social justice. You see, the outside only knows how we live before them. He says in verse 17, learn to do well. And he says, seek judgment. And then he says, relieve the oppressed. And he says, judge the fatherless and plead for the widow. See, the fatherless, the orphans, and the widows had a special place in God's design in the Old Testament. In fact, back in the under the law, he made provisions for their... Uh, Needs, and he said, "When you reap the corners, when you reap your fields, leave the corners and leave the uh, gleanings for the poor and for the needy, for the widows, for the orphans, for those that were in need." And God is concerned about people in need, and you and I ought to have the same sympathy and love. He says, "Learn to do well, seek judgment, relieve the oppressed." When people are oppressed, they do a lot of things that they really wouldn't do otherwise. 
And he says, judge the fatherless, that's the orphans, and plead for the widow. And then in verses 18 through 20, I want you to notice another section here. If they do this, here's what will happen. If they do what we've just studied in verses 16 and 17, they will be cleansed from sin and enjoy the good things of God. Look at verses 18 and 19. And 20, really. But 18 and 19 shows what statement I just made. He says, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be as wool. Then he says, If ye be willing and obedient, ye shall eat of the good of the land. But if ye refuse and rebel, ye shall be devoured with a sword, for the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. You see, God wants us to be real, doesn't he? He wants us to realize that he has forgiveness, but then we also have to be willing and obedient to have his blessings. Come now. I always love this verse. I can remember a time when my dad was on his deathbed up in Albuquerque, New Mexico. And we went to, I believe it's Temple Baptist. Brother Curtis Goldman was up there. I think I have the name right. In Albuquerque. And I had to stay, Louise and I and Daryl had to stay in the motel during that time, during the summer, because uh, we couldn't leave Dad. He's there. He was permanently there in the hospital, Veterans Hospital. But anyway, my brother-in-law, Everett Stroop, one of my sister's uh, younger sister, her husband, they had lived in Washington State after the war. We had gone through the service World War II together. And... Uh, he came home and visited me here in Rio Dosa and married my younger sister. I don't know if it's a good idea to have him coming up. Nancy's grinning back there. Anyway, they had a little girl. Her name was Sandy. She was six years of age. And he came by there uh, to visit us. And we had a visit with them in Albuquerque, and they went on their way. But during that time, now, my sister had been a Christian a long while. But during that time, we went to a meeting there. And I remember there was a, a missionary preaching that night, and uh, he preached on, or it might have been in the morning service, I don't remember now whether it's a morning service or evening. But uh, this missionary was preaching on this verse, Come now and let us reason together, saith the Lord. And Everett was saved that morning. And uh, I think it must have been only about a year later, we were st- still going to seminary in Fort Worth. And he came by and visited, went up to Elgin, Illinois, to where his brother and family had lived before. Came by from Washington, went up there. And uh, I believe it was on about a Tuesday that my sister called me and she says, Wayne, the worst has happened. I said, what's happened? She said, Everett died. He was only about 31 or 2 years old at that time. Maybe maybe less than that. But uh, maybe 28 or 9. Because we were close to the same age, and, and I was still going to school, so it's probably earlier than that. But anyway, to make a long story short, I went up to preach his funeral and everything. But if he hadn't come by that year to see us, he might have died without ever accepting the Lord. We don't know. But uh, I always uh, marveled at this verse of Scripture. Another verse of Scripture, the same verse of Scripture when I was in Mount Pleasant, Texas. You've heard me preach, uh, tell you about Granny Haynes, the one that walked across the town to church, you know. And drank up my pitcher of water when I was supposed to have something to drink. <laughs> anyway, it was so great. But my song leader and I visited her uh, one night when we first went to Mount Pleasant. And we witnessed her and she accepted the Lord and began to, I think it was right before Easter, she was baptized. I believe Easter Sunday, if I'm not mistaken. 
And before Christmas that year, she passed away and I preached her funeral. But anyway, she'd walk all, after she was saved, she'd walk all the way across town and, and she would, uh, get to church and, and, uh, people would go by to pick her up, but she's already gone. That's the problem. It wasn't, they wasn't willing to pick her up. They'd go by to pick her up and Granny Haynes was nowhere to be found about that time she's walking through the church door. And it's all the way across Mount Pleasant. Man, I told you about the day that we had a big picture. The deacons had always had a big picture of ice water there. And she was sitting right on the front row there. And it was hot down there. And she just got up and I was preaching. She walked up there and she didn't get a cup. There's a glass sitting next to it. She took that pitcher and just turned it up and drained it. I mean, and then went back and sat down. You'd think that disturbed the service. Nobody cracked a smile. We just went right on preaching. <laughs> But anyway, this verse of Scripture, come, God says, come now. When does He say? Right now. And let us reason together. Isn't it a condescending thing that God Almighty would say, I'm going to call you to reason with me? Who is God to say, let's reason together? He should say, come and you do what I tell you, right? But He says, come and let us reason together. Saith the Lord. And look what He says. Though your sins be as scarlet... They shall be as white as snow. Now, then, scarlet's red. You know, we call uh, the scarlet sin, the adultery. And it says, though they be uh, red like crimson. Crimson is a double-dyed red. In other words, this is extra red. They shall be as wool. We're double-dyed red as sinners. You know that? We're not only sinners by nature, but we're sinners by choice. And God has to break through that and cleanse all of that. And He gives us a new nature, and He forgives us of all of our sins as well. And He redeems us from the penalty of sin. And then He says, how about the the blessings? Uh, They will be cleansed from their sin and enjoy the good things of God. If you be willing and obedient, verse 19, what does He say? You shall eat of the good of the land. And you know God's promises are to you and I too. If we're willing and obedient, He will bless us. We sing a song, trust and obey, for there's no other way to what? Be happy in Jesus, but to trust and obey. And then he says, but if you refuse and rebel, oh my, why is it so many people refuse and rebel against God? You shall be devoured with the sword, then war and destruction awaits them. And it's not a real war that awaits us as if we go out to battle and the sword devours us. But it's kind of like David when Nathan told David. David wasn't killed in war, but David. Uh, but Nathan said to David, "The sword shall never depart from your house." And it was a sword of judgment. It was God's judgment upon his house. So you say, "Well, what does the sword mean to me? I'm not going out and fight with anyone that has a sword." Yes, but God's judgment is as a sword. And He says that the word of God is quick and powerful, Hebrews 4:12, and sharper than any two-edged sword. And it's His Word that pierces and brings conviction to our heart and causes us to be willing to, if we're repentant, it will bring the desired effect. And He says in the last part of verse 20, For the mouth of the Lord has spoken it. You know, it's thus saith the Lord. What I like about the prophet Isaiah and Jeremiah and some of these others, it's always thus saith the Lord. And let me tell you that the first 35 chapters of this book of Isaiah are the prophecies of condemnation. And then the last chapters, from chapters 40 on through 66, are the prophecies of comfort. It seems like all through the first section of this uh, book of Isaiah, God is having to show 
the people, how they are suffering for their sins. Now, though, we get into some prophecy of the last days. In the next chapter, we'll have that if we get to it in a moment. But uh, we're going to find that uh, the first part deals with condemnation because of their rebellion, because of their sin, and because they will not turn to God. It's kind of like the prophet Amos. When he was preaching to Judah and Israel, he started out with the heathen nations round about. And he says, for three transgressions of Moab, of Ammon, and various uh, Philistia and different places. He says, uh, and for four, for three transgressions and for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. And he denounces six heathen nations round about Judah and Israel. And then he says, for three transgressions of Israel. You know, it's all right if the preacher preaches against the heathen. It's all right if the preacher preaches against those that are remotely removed from our presence. Or the on the outside. Or the wicked and the ungodly. But then the prophet Amos says, for three transgressions of Israel, God's own people. And for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. He has the same scale of judgment. And the Bible says, if judgment first begin at us, where shall the ungodly and sinner appear? And then he starts with Judah. For three transgressions of Judah. And for four, I will not turn away the punishment thereof. What he was saying, that fourth transgression tips the scales. You and I have said, that's just one step too far. And that's what God was saying. You've gone. And he said, when that fourth one comes... He was merely saying there is a point that is to be reached that God's judgment is determined. So we find here in Isaiah, the first chapters, that he's speaking of condemnation and of judgment. And the result of that obstinate refusal is found, the result of that refusing and rebelling, is found in verses 21 through 24. Open your Bible. Have your Bible there. Chapter 1, verse 21. Okay, he's going to tell the results. Notice in verse 21. How is the faithful city become an harlot? It, it was full of judgment. Righteousness lodged in, in, in it. In other words, what it was before. It was, it was uh, full of judgment. It, righteousness lodged in it. But now, murderers. It had become a place for murderers. It says, Thy silver has become dross. Thy wine mixed with water. Thy princes are rebellious. There's corruption. And companions of thieves. Their leaders were corrupted. Does that sound familiar? Jerusalem was no longer a city of faithfulness and justice and righteousness. Now a harlot city. A refuge for murderers. And their leaders were rebellious and companions of thieves. And everyone that loveth gifts. They wanted bribes. They wanted a payoff. Up in the high offices. As I said, does this, uh, any of this sound familiar? You say Isaiah was written 800 years before the time of Christ, and we still have modern thoughts coming through, don't we? And follow after rewards. And it says, They judge not the fatherless, neither doth the cause of the widow come unto them. You and I today really need to realize that God's plan all through is to care for those that, are, that were helpless and in need. In verse 24, Therefore saith the Lord, the Lord of hosts, the mighty one of Israel, Ah, I will ease me of mine adversaries and avenge me of mine enemies. You see, God is the one that does the avenging. Verses 25 through uh, 31 will show the result or the promise of restoration if they will meet God's conditions. But now God is going to show that he will vent his wrath and his judgment will purge their impurity Sinners will be destroyed. Idolaters will be ashamed. But let's begin reading with verse 25. 
And I will turn my hand upon thee and purely purge away thy dross. What does he say? Purge away thy dross and take away all thy kin. And I will restore thy judges as at the first. Isn't it always wonderful that in God's word, where you have strict, terrible, uh, 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 what should I say, condemnation because of sin, God always puts a ray of light and a ray of hope. Remember, haven't we already experienced this? Down to verse 15, he was telling what he hated about their religion and their worship. And then he turns down and verse 16, 17, 18 says, Wash and be clean, learn to do well. And he says, Come and let us reason together and I'll forgive your sins. Your sins will be as scarlet, they'll be white as snow. And now he's told about what uh, the obstinate refusal, rebelling and refusing. Verse 20. And what were the results of such refusal? And now, beginning with verse uh, 26, he says, And I will restore thy judges, as at the first restoration. Isn't, isn't that true of all the word of God? Though he condemns sin, yet he gives us a ray of hope. And he gives us a, what means of forgiveness. That's just the way God is. Back in the Old Testament, when the judges ruled, they would, uh, they would sin, they'd get away from God, Israel would turn away from God. And they start crying to God for help. God would send them a deliverer. And when he had sent that deliverer, he, that deliverer like uh, Gideon, Samson, various other judges. In the book of Judges, you read the whole story. And it's a series of God's people calling upon him for deliverance. God sends them a deliverer. And then they're delivered out of their problems and, and everything is restored and everything's looking good. And then they turn right around and rebel against God again and start compromising with idols and start doing uh, terrible things. And God has to let the other nations cause them oppression and, and turmoil arises. And then they repent. They turn to God and cry for help. And God sends them another deliverer. Same way with Israel of old and the same way with God's people today. Wouldn't it be something if the Christian people of this community that have been saved at some time or other would turn back to God? You couldn't seat all of them in this church tonight. That I mean that should be in this church, let alone the other churches. But what happens? People get slack in their convictions. People say, well, what difference does it make? They turn loose and say, if a little sin doesn't hurt, a whole lot of sin's not much worse. Right? You know? And they just get to backsliding and going away from God. That's the way people are. They get to where they can tolerate it, put up with it, and, and then they get away from God and they fail to read their Bibles. They fa- fail to pray. They fail to have the desire deep down to really serve God. Listen. When you want to serve God, it touches more than just an emotion, little emotional service. You can come to a service and say, Boy, I really enjoyed that. You know, the Lord really got a hold of my heart. And uh, there'll be some tears shed. I'm not against shedding tears. You ought to shed them once in a while. But on the other hand, and you go out and you start doing just the same old thing without your will and desire to really repent and to continue to serve God is implanted in you then it amounts to very little. You see, you don't serve God just by spurts. A little time here and a little there. That's not the way to serve God. If you're going to be a servant of God, be one from now on. I hope this is registered because that's really what we need. And we find people that are in and out all the time, hot and cold. And that was a trouble in the book of Revelation that Jesus said, because you're just lukewarm, He says, I will spew you out of my mouth. 
And we ought to really mean business for God. And unless your will, your desire to surrender, to do God's will, and to say, I'm going to be His servant forever. Back in the Old Testament, when a servant, after he had served seven years and time for him to be relieved of his servitude, if he was in bondage, and there's certain incidents said if he had married a wife while he was in that service for his master, and they had had children, and the time of his release was to come, and he would say, no, I don't want to go free. He was ready to go free. He paid his debt. But he, he could say to his master, he could say, I love my wife, I love my children, I love my master, and I don't want to go free. They would take him to the doorpost and bore his ear through with an awl as a sign of his perpetual servitude, and he would remain in the house of his master forever. And that was a voluntary submission to be, be God's servant forever. And Paul says, I am a bond slave, a bond servant of Jesus Christ. Have you taken such a vow? You say, well, I don't know. I don't want to serve. I don't know if I really want to serve God from now on. Well, that's the best thing you can do. And that's exactly where all of us ought to be voluntary bond servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. Not because we're forced to. He made us free. This man was set free. But nevertheless, he said, I will serve. I will serve forever. And you read that in the book of Exodus. And I forget what chapter right at the moment. But uh, you can read the story of it. Perpetual servitude. Well, some of these boys and girls, young people, you need to make up your mind right here now. I mean, before the day goes by and before the week goes by, that if you're going, you've accepted Christ as your Savior, that you really mean business about it. And that you're going to be His forever. Now, that doesn't mean you can't make mistakes, and you, because all of us do. That doesn't mean there will be times that you'll think, well, you know, why should I go to church, or why should I read my Bible, or maybe your prayer life will be a little lower than it should be. But you ought to have the determination to say, God, I'm your child, and I want to be your servant. And if you'll take that attitude, He'll help you to be one. He'll help you to be one. Uh, notice verse... Uh, 26, he says, I will restore thy judges as at the first and thy counselors as at the beginning. God has a means of restoration. He says, afterward thou shalt be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. They had lost that title up till now. But he said, afterward you're going. It says, Zion shall be redeemed with judgment and her converts with righteousness. And the destruction of the transgressors of the sinners shall be together. And they that forsake the Lord shall be consumed. You see, God wants us to serve Him. And there's a price to pay if we, if we go out and deliberately transgress against the things of God. It says, For they shall be ashamed of the oaks which they have desired, and ye shall be confounded for the gardens that ye have chosen. They serve God on the high hills. I mean, they serve, they tempted to serve God on the high hills, but they were serving, uh, by sacrificing on the, Heels of their idols. In verse um, 30 it says, For you shall be as an oak whose leaf, fadeth, whose leaf fadeth, and as a garden that hath no water. And the strong shall be as a toe, and the maker of it as a spark, and they shall both burn together, and none shall quench them. Leaders who rely on their own strength are like tender that is ignited by the spark of their own wicked works. You know, sometimes you have to you light your own fire to your own destruction. And that's what it's speaking of there. Let's look at chapter 2. We find in the first four verses the glories in the latter days. And verses, verse 5 says, 
exhortation to walk in the light. And then verses uh, 6 through 9, the corruption of the people again. And in verses 10 through 22, the day of Jehovah. There's four things in this chapter. First is the glories of the latter days. You know, the latter days have been since the days of Jesus. The days of the Messiah, of His first coming and the period of grace between. And then it includes His second coming. The Bible says that in Hebrews 1 verse 2, that God has spoken to us in His Son. That's chapter 1. Who in these last days, who has spoken to us in His Son or by His Son. In these what? Last days. Let me see in the book of Acts chapter 2. In Acts chapter 2 and verse 17, notice what it says here. And it shall come to pass in the last days, saith God, I will pour out my Spirit upon all flesh. And he says, this is that which was spoken by the prophet Joel. And so he, the day of Pentecost was a fulfillment or a, uh, was something that was mentioned in the, in the book of Joel. And Peter speaks of the last days. But the last days not only include Christ's first coming. There will give you some more scripture references. First uh, Peter chapter 1 and verse 5 would include the second part of his coming. In other words, the time that he will come uh, back again. First Peter chapter 1 verse 5. Let me see if I can read this for you. It says, who are kept by the power of God through faith and the salvation, ready to be revealed in the, la- in the last time. So the last time, when Christ is revealed, we're ready to be revealed in the last time. I believe verse, verse 20 mentions something about it too. Let's look. Verse 20 it says, Who verily was foreordained before the foundation of the world, but was manifest in these last times for you. That's when Christ first came and, and died on the cross for us. And then His second coming is included. So... The Bible is speaking of the last days here in verses 1 through 4 in the book of Isaiah. Look at it, chapter 2, verse 1 through 4. The word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem, and it says, that shall come to pass in the last days that the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established in the top of the mountains. Notice. And shall be exalted above the hills, and all nations shall flow into it. The last days. And many people shall go and say, Come ye and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob, and he will teach us of his ways, and we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. This favored, exalted status of Jerusalem is spoken of. The mountain of the, of the Lord's house in verse 2. It will be established above the mountains. Mountains are typical of, of nations, but the, God's... Uh, kingdom, nations and kingdom. God's kingdom will be established and all other nations shall flow into it. In verse 2. And there will be many people that will say, uh, uh, shall go and say, come and let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, the house of the God of Jacob. And the reason, he will teach us of his ways. And we will walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. Now look at verse 4. And he shall judge among the nations and shall rebuke many people. Who is going to be the righteous judge? He's going to be sitting uh, on the throne and he will be settling all international controversies. You know, we think we've got men today that will settle controversies all over the world. We send ambassadors here and there. And we think, well, we really have one now that can settle things. When Jesus sits upon the throne and when he judges among all nations... 
and he shall rebuke many people. And what's going to happen? They're going to quit fighting. Look at the next part. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. They'll make their weapons of war into weapons of, of uh, plowing the land. Fruitfulness instead of destruction. And then it says, uh, and their spears into pruning hooks, it says, nation shall not lift up sword against nation. That means there will be peace. We're talking about the millennium now, the coming of Christ's kingdom, and the things that will happen after the Lord comes. This is not going to happen till till this earthly reign is over of, of men, and then the uh, tribulation period takes place, and then the Lord comes in judgment at the end of the tribulation, and in Revelation chapter 20, He sets up a, His millennial kingdom, and it's going to be a thousand years of peace and righteousness. And we're going to see some things that will happen uh, during that time. It says, They shall beat their uh, swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation. Look, the last statement. Neither shall they learn war anymore. What does that mean? We won't have any military academies or naval academies. Or we won't have to have those things. We have to have them today, today because we live in a world where men are... are uh, in battle and fight each other, don't we? You know, most of us cannot imagine what it would be like for there not to be that kind of of uh, sin in the world. We really can't imagine. James says, From whence cometh wars and fightings among you? Now, whether it's on a small scale, one person against another, a community, a nation, a state, or a nation, or the whole world, whence cometh wars and fightings among you? Come they not from your own members with lust which war in, in your members? You see, as long as there's sin in men, and there will be until the Lord comes, there's going to be wars and there's going to be fightings because there's always someone going to be greedy. There's always someone wanting to get the best of the other fella. There's always someone wanting to do someone else in. And whether it's on a small scale or large, the the principle is the same. The principle is the same. No wonder Jesus said, Blessed are the peacemakers. You and I are to make peace with one another. We're not to be fighting one another. What good does it do to fight? What good does it do? You say, well, I won. Did you really? You may have won the battle, but you lost friends. You brought in a lot of trouble. There was suffering had to be attached to it. And you really didn't win anything. You just thought you did. It's a lot easier to live in peace than it is to live in turmoil. And it says... Neither shall they learn war anymore. And verse 5 says, O house of Jacob, come ye and let us walk in the light of the Lord. Isn't that what Paul says in the New Testament, to walk in the light? Isn't that what John said, to walk in the light? He says, walk in the light as he, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then we have what? Fellowship one with another. And what does happen? And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, God's son, cleanseth us. That's... A present continuous action cleanseth us. It keeps on cleansing us from all sin. But that's when we walk in the light, as He is in the light. And verse 6 says, Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob. Why has God forsaken them? The corruption of the people is spoken of in verses 6 through 9. We'll try to get certain sections of this to close on in a moment. It says, Therefore thou hast forsaken thy people, the house of Jacob, because they replenished from the east and are, and are soothsayers. They became diviners, soothsayers, like the Philistines. The Philistines were the worldly people 
that were the enemies of Israel. And they pleased themselves in the children of strangers. The nature of their sin is outlined here. They join hands. They please themselves or join hands with their with these children of strangers or nations and people that worshipped idols. And they make alliances with them. Look in Exodus 23 verse 32. I want to give you this verse of scripture. Exodus 23 verse 32 says, Thou shalt make no covenant with them. Listen carefully. And it says, Nor with their gods. They shall not dwell in thy land, lest thou make thee, lest they make thee to sin against me. You see the influence of heathen nations round about Israel? For if thou shalt serve their gods, it will surely be a snare unto thee. That's Exodus 23, verse 32 and 33. Listen to those words again now. Listen carefully. Thou shalt make no covenant with them, nor with their gods. Have you got people today that make covenants and compromise their convictions and make covenants with the gods of that we should not. And then it says, They shall not dwell in thy land. And it says, Lest they make thee sin against me. You see, the influence of others that are not living for God has a great deal of effect upon you. See, it does make a difference what kind of company you keep. And it says here, for they, Lest they make thee to sin against me. For if thou serve their gods... It will surely be a snare unto thee. And God was telling them through the prophets. He told them through the, uh, in the book of Joshua, Judges. Joshua, he had the same problem. Remember, they would have put out certain Canaanites from their presence unless there'd be thorns in their sides. And they went ahead and they disobeyed God and they married in with them and they had made compromises with them and then they uh, got into their uh, idol worship because they influenced them. You ever heard Christians say now, I can go in the places of wickedness and I'll influence those people and they'll become Christians. That'll be the miracle of the day. Listen, did you know you've got two strikes against you? You know what? The first strike against you is that you also still have a carnal nature. Have you ever thought of that? That old carnal nature is still in you. And if you're going to try to win them by doing what they do and say, now look, I'm a Christian, but you still got that carnal nature too. And they don't have the other nature that you have. See, they've got the advantage of you and you just don't realize it. Because you still have that that is susceptible and capable of falling into their, their pattern of life. That's why the Bible teaches that you should be separate. Now, it doesn't mean that you should not pray for for a sinner. It doesn't mean that you shouldn't witness to sinners. But it means that the Bible says, Have no fellowship with the unfruitful works of darkness, but rather reprove them. And it says, Come out from among them, and be you separate, saith the Lord, and touch not the unclean thing. And he says, You'll be my sons and daughters. You see, God's people are in the world, but not of it. Jesus said, I pray not that you should take them out of the world, but that you would keep them, Father, from the evil that's in the world. And so, you are to be a separated people. Some people say, you know, Christians are stuck up. No, they're not stuck up, but they are separated. They should be separated, brethren. Sometimes we don't find that they are. And you know, it's a sad thing when the... When the world and the unsaved and the ungodly cannot tell any difference between you and I and the rest of the world. One has said, has the church, has the world become more godly or has the church become more worldly? And Jesus said, marvel not if the world hate you. It hated me before it hated you. 
So the thing about it is our separation. Well, our time is gone. Let's pick up with verse uh, uh, 6 on down. We've read verse 6, part of it. Didn't get through with it, but we'll pick up with chapter 2, verse 6 in our next, next lesson. And we do thank you for your